This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special history episode of the podcast is the Naval History Editor-in-Chief, Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Greetings, Ward. It's been too long a time. How have you been? I've been fine. We're back to normal, as we announced a couple of podcasts ago. I am here in our new studio facility, what we call the house that Pete built, and uh we look forward to having you join me in person uh, in subsequent episodes. But today you're you're calling us from uh, stately Mills Manor on the Eastern Shore. It's good to see you as well. And uh, joining us to monitor the podcast are our summer interns, the first block of Naval Academy. These are rising seniors, what we call first class midshipmen. We have two history majors and an English major. We have Joey, Nick, and Marcus. So this is their third podcast or second third yeah they're and they'll, they'll monitor our next one too so they're here for a few weeks they're busy creating content and getting smart on the naval institute uh, hopefully we can take them to the pentagon and they can hang out with sam and the us and i news team before their uh, their time expires and uh we also had pizza lunch wednesdays or pizza days here for our interns only the best for naval institute interns does that mean anchovies were on it no, pizza equals pepperoni. That's it. And refreshment equals Coke. No Diet Coke, right? We're not Marxists. So what's happening in naval history? What do we have to look forward to? I know we're, we're did we just put the uh, July issue to bed or what, what? where are we? Yeah, we just, literally just put the July-August issue to bed and it's going to be a barn burner. We're very excited about it, folks. Um we got a great Marine Corps Small Wars package um, in there for you. We got something about the Coast Guard birthday. Um, lots of other goodies. Um, be, be watching for it. Uh, it'll be out on July 1. Currently, though, the June issue is um, out, and uh, we're getting lots of great feedback on it, uh, including um, the article which we'll be talking about today. More on that in a moment. All right. Well, speaking about the article that we'll be talking about today, let's start talking about the article we'll be talking about today. Joining us for, I think it's the third time, is our returning champion, historian Vince O'Hara. Vince, is this the third time? You probably know better than we do. Well, you know, I was trying to count, and I, it could be the fourth time. Okay. It could be the third time, but as we say, who's keeping track? I'm just happy to be here, and it's always a pleasure to um, come and talk naval history because there is nothing on earth that is more interesting. Is that so, not right, Eric? Amen. Well, he's got a story he's going to be sending us soon. You can tell. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I fully agree with you, friend. Vince, when you say just happy to be here, you know, that's how the Blue Angels start their debrief. Each guy around the table says, just happy to be here, boss, before they tell on themselves after every flight. Um, well, so there's, there's a, a lot line. of power in, in, in the um, 
what should I say, enthusiastic participation. I like it. 80 years ago this June, the Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, igniting the greatest slaughter in the history of warfare. On this anniversary, the deeds of the Soviet Red Army are going to be honored, of course. But in the midst of these celebrations, the Red Navy's role in the eventual triumph of Soviet arms shouldn't be forgotten. Too often, the Red Navy's contributions have been downplayed by former enemies, by allies, by historians. But the Red Navy was crucial to the success of the Soviet Union in World War II, and here to help set the record straight on that is Vincent O'Hara, who authored Forgotten Victor in the current June issue of Naval History. Vince, it's great to have you back again. Well, like I said, it's always a pleasure. Before I go too far into this interview, I'd like to give credit and acknowledgments to my co-author, Stephen McLaughlin. Steve is a Naval Institute author. He's the author of the um, Russian Battleships, which you which you guys will be reissuing, I believe. And it's it's a it's a great book. It's a book that I I had to um, almost impossible to get right now, and I finally did get a hold of a copy. And, and I'm, I'm I'm very happy to be working with Steve on this, and and I think the article. The quality of the article reflects Steve's intervention, shall we say. It's fascinating to look at the Soviet Navy's role, because you never really read about that. And when you talk about the Soviets in World War II, you talk about the Great Patriotic War, the millions that were sacrificed in the carnage battlefields, the, the way the, the Soviet Union looked after the war was just all rubble. It was just a mess. But like so many other factors um, that you see in great land wars of history, the naval component is crucial to the outcome of what happens on land. And as your article articulately shows, that's certainly true in the case of the Soviet Union in World War II. And it's amazing to me, and I'll let you touch on this more, how they really were starting from nothing because they had purged the uh, czarist officers. Uh, they, they, they were really just getting back up to speed. And um, Despite all that, they do some amazing things, uh, including the largest, I believe, amphibious operation up to the war at that point. But I'll let you talk about that. I think there's different aspects of, of the Soviet Navy that that need to be considered when you when you're looking at its effectiveness in World War II. As Anglo Anglo American historians tend to dominate the narrative of the naval war. And there's no reason why they shouldn't, having the two largest navies and the two most successful navies of the war. We, we tend to think that whatever whatever the U.S. Navy did or the Royal Navy did was the way it should be done. And we forget that every nation has its own unique situation, its own unique challenges, uh, different resources, different, different uh, things that it needs to get done. And in this sense, the Soviet Navy was far different than the Anglo-American navies. I list in the article, Steve and I list in the article, several of the handicaps that the Soviets had to operate under. And you make a very good point talking about the fact that we have 30-year-old um, admirals operating in the Soviet Navy because everybody else has been slaughtered. In fact, if you look at the total casualties that the Navy suffered in World War II, uh, 44,000 plus, then you look at the casualties they suffered in the purges. And if you include... Uh, Enlisted people as well as officers, you have about 10% of the total casualties they suffered during the war were suffered before the war uh, on, at their own hands. I think that's kind of extraordinary. The fact that geography limited the Soviets' ability to operate navies. I, I mentioned this in the article about how the world's largest nation, how ironic it is that the world's largest nation only has four narrow outlets onto the world ocean. 
and three of those windows were controlled by hostile powers. They had to transit choke points through the Baltic, through the um, Sea of Japan, and uh, through the uh, Black Sea, through the Dardanelles. So the Soviets had very little access to the ocean. And of course, this affected their, their navy and it affected the way that they had to fight the war. I mean, these are, these are just the realities that the Soviets faced, and they're not realities that the Anglo-Americans faced. So naturally, the Soviets fought a different war. I think that support of the army was, was perhaps job number one, at least in the, in, at least in terms of the political leadership, how they viewed the Navy's function. And of course, what the political leader sets, what the political leadership had to say in the case of the Soviet Navy is what happened. I think the Soviet Navy was was unparalleled in their ability to improvise. You, you referred, um, Ward, to the largest amphibious operation of the war to date, which the Soviets conducted in December 1941, when they put more than 40,000 people ashore in the Kerch Peninsula and the Crimean Peninsula and stopped the Germans from taking Sevastopol. And they basically improvised this operation. They did it in the dead of winter. They did it without specialized landing craft. They did it without amphibious transports. They did it without air support. They did it without training. But they did it. They did it with horrendous casualties, but they they came ashore and they completely disrupted the German plans. So I, I think that the Soviets deserve credit for being able to do things that the Western navies, that no other navy, could really carry out. So it's a very interesting interesting um, situation there. I think that that is one of the most unsung epic operations of the war that I've seen. Um, by stopping the, I mean the Germans ha had um, Sevastopol all but in their hands when this, the Soviets managed to stop them in their tracks with this amphibious operation. And by so doing, they cut them off from that oil they're trying to get to. And oil was the lifeblood of Hitler's war machine, and without it, he died. I, I agree with that 100%. I think my personal opinion that the operation, that landing, did in fact save the, the oil fields. I mean, it was, it was a close thing anyway. The, Germ the Germans reached, reached some of the closer oil fields in 1942, but if they had had a head start, if they had had supplies built up, if they had occupied ports to the east of, of Sevastopol before that operation, before that campaign started, you know, it would have been a different story. I, I really think that it would have been. But instead, they had to spend the summer of 1942 taking Sevastopol, which they could have had in December of 1941. That's that's one of the big things the Navy did that it gets very little credit for. They also did three key things in every theater, as you point out. Um, I'll let you go on at length about them, but these are the kind of um, not headline-grabbing important things that navies do that win wars, right? They uh, protected the lines of communications and their own vital traffic. They supported the land forces. They interfered with enemy traffic. Uh, they got the army around to where it needed to go, all these kind of things. And um, these are the kind of reasons that they're crucial to victory, yet often don't get the accolades. Wouldn't you agree? I agree completely. We look at, we look at big naval battles. We look at Midway. We look at the Bismarck. We look at, we look at dramatic episodes. And we say, ah, oh, herein lies the key to sea power. But in point of fact, sea power has very little to do with drama. I, I firmly believe that sea power has everything to do with routine, with uh, daily the daily details that, that accumulate and accrue, and that are the key elements of success. It's um, a well-known fact that it's much easier to carry goods and supplies over the water than it is by land. 
we look today at these giant, giant container ships and how much how much material they can carry. And we have sophisticated air and land transportation, but still, in our world, it's the sea that carries the goods. And that's completely true of armies. I think one of the things that really started my, my interest in writing this article was I was looking at I was looking at the the um, situation around Lake Lugada, close to Leningrad, and I was just playing with numbers, and I realized that they were shipping more goods across that lake than the uh, Axis powers were shipping to Rommel in North Africa. And I said, you know, wow, that's that's kind of interesting. I, admittedly, the journey was short, but not that much shorter, and the boats were much smaller, and they did this in the face of tremendous, tremendous um, opposition. And I say to myself, well, what does it take to be able to do that? And how important was this to the survival of Leningrad? And it's obvious that if you can support an army in Africa with less supplies than the, the Soviets were receiving in Leningrad, then the fact that Leningrad was able to hold out for that siege for more than two years makes a lot more sense. As far as the gunfire support is concerned, again, how did Leningrad survive for two years surrounded by a German army? Uh, one of the reasons was the ample gunfire support they enjoyed. Naval artillery is a fearsome thing to a soldier ashore. I mean, there's nothing quite like it, I believe. And that's demonstrated in how the Soviets were able to um, maintain their positions in the East like that. In the Black Sea, every every Soviet offensive was supported, if it was you know close to the coast, was supported by gunpowder. And that's one of the emphases that the uh, Soviets put on their Navy was the ability, every ship, every large ship had to have the ability to support the troops, and that's even true of submarine guns. So it was it was a very important priority for the Soviets, and it was something that they put a lot of time and attention into, and it was something they did relatively well. And for that, they get no credit because, you know, we just don't think of the Soviets as, as doing gunfire support. At least most people don't. Vince, I'd like to go back to the sort of scene setter that takes us to the beginning of the war in terms of the purges. There's a great paragraph I'll just read it because it's kind of amazing. And I think current naval officers will be kind of blown away by some of these facts. So the great purges of the 1930s, which also consumed much of the Red Army and Communist Party leadership, ended the steady improvements in the Navy's technical and operational skills, leaving it without enough qualified personnel to fill its command positions. Promotion was necessarily rapid. N.G. Kuznetsov, whose name... I recognize because that's the name of their first real carrier, which I was deployed when that carrier did its first deployment to the Med, and it was broken the entire time sitting off the <laughs> coast of Tunisia. Couldn't even make water, but that's a different story. Um, appointed head of the Navy in April of 1939, was 39 years old, so basically the age of an 05, a commander, and a squadron commander, or a ship CO. The oldest of the fleet commanders was 46, the youngest was 35. A 27-year-old skipper of an escort vessel, a lieutenant's billet, four years later was a rear admiral in command of a cruiser squadron. Non-commissioned officers lacked necessary education and training were promoted to fill vacant command positions. Suicide rates climbed. And then you say such a severe pruning did allow some talent to emerge, Kuznetsov being an example. But in most cases, officers, quote, were passive and avoided responsibility, end quote. So I just think that's amazing. This is where Stalin, you know, cut off his nose to spite his face, in some cases literally. Um, not his nose, but the nose of his, uh, you know, talented military as well as politicos or whatever else. You know, and so I, I just, I don't know how you, 
field a combat-capable force when you're doing this? It limits your options. One of the great criticisms that the British naval attaches would lay against the Soviet Navy is that they don't they they weren't helping us as we were conveying um, material into Murmansk. You know, they weren't participating in the convoys. They weren't they weren't helping out the way they should have. And they were kind of contemptuous of, of the Soviets saying, well, you know, these guys are not seamen. And, and to be honest, there was probably some truth in, in some of that criticism. As you know, taking a destroyer to sea and operating it effectively or a destroyer squadron to sea is not, is something which requires a little bit of skill and training. And if you don't have that, you tend to be more limited in your options and what you can do. The Soviets focused on what they did well. They did a lot of it. And as the war went on, they got better and better at it. Uh, for me, I think the greatest accomplishments that Navy that Navy performed had to do with supplying isolated isolated um, garrisons, you know, Leningrad being one, Odessa being another, Sevastopol being a third. They were able to maintain very large bodies of troops in very isolated positions, despite the lack of air power, despite the lack of air superiority. And... I, I can't think of too many other navies that were able to carry things like that off. Generally, if you're shipping, if you're supplying troops over um, disputed waters, you have a very short period of time when you can keep that up without suffering excessive losses. Well, the, the Russians, the Soviets didn't really let that stop them, and they they continued and did it. So I, I think I think they had their they had their lack of ability, I think it's shown by their seamanship in some respects, by by the fact that they weren't as able to um, conduct submarine warfare. There's, there's another good example. They weren't able to um, use the world's largest submarine fleet to any good effect. And during the entire course of the war, they sank about as much shipping as the Germans sank, about half as much shipping as the Germans sank in a bad month. So what they did with their submarines was, was um, not very impressive. And what they did do happened most of it most of it happened in 1944 and 1945 after they had some experience well submarine skipper that's that's a good example of somebody that requires a lot of skill and coordination you can't just take some you know 25 year old lieutenant well and put him in charge of a submarine i guess you can germans did it but it requires a lot of training and then the soviets were just not doing that they had they had to um use what they had and they they put the men out there and said do it and the skippers tried to do it. And if they didn't do it, they said they did it. Does that make sense? It does. And they may have squandered their opportunity with submarines. You point out this kind of their greatest failure. And they had a lot of subs. They just weren't great subs. But, um, yeah, they, that never really, really took off for them as a naval factor. But on the other side of the equation, they were lucky in a sense, weren't they, with a squandered opportunity of the, the German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, if they had given more um, – uh, naval support to the army, like attacking Leningrad, you know, the push on Leningrad, um, as you point out, it would have fallen a lot sooner. Somehow they were content to just sort of hold back because they, they sort of doubt they underestimated or whatever the uh, Soviet fleet in, in the north. They concentrated more on attacking the convoys. But if, if they'd given the kind of um, support to the army advancing, um, there wouldn't have been much to stop them. So in a sense, the Soviet was Soviets were lucky there, weren't they? Well, they were and they weren't. We have to take it. We have to take it region by region, and I think in the Baltic, where their greatest opportunities were, was also the sea that had the greatest dangers. 
because one thing one thing that the Soviets did well was they they knew how to use a mine. They knew how to lay a mine. Um, and they knew how to uh, mine mine water. That's always been a historic Russian tactic in World War One and even in the Russo-Japanese War. They relied a lot on mines. If you if you look at the Russo-Japanese War, the two Japanese battleships that were sunk were both sunk by Russian mines. So go, sailing up the Gulf of Finland was never an option because it was just too heavily mined. It was too dangerous. There was too much going on there. But that said, there was nothing to stop the, the German Navy from supporting the army in the months of June, July, and August when they were, when they were um, advancing on Leningrad. There was nothing to stop them from, I, I mentioned the port in Estonia, um, that they could have developed Thailand. They could have developed and used that as a supply head, but they never bothered. The first convoys to Riga didn't take place until the middle of July. And these were, you know, small time affairs. They, they never really mustered the men and the materials and the resources to, to, to um, support the army the way it could have been, should have been supported. And I think there's political reasons for that, the politics between the German Navy and the German army, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, it was a lost opportunity. I, I think without a doubt, um, one of one of several lost opportunities that the German Navy um, did not take advantage of. Leningrad was a plum prize to be taken, and with the naval support of the army at that key point, that could have happened, as you point out in the article. Well, we'll never know because it never they never tried to do it. But I, I find it very difficult to believe that that um, even even one week would have made one week of supply, you know, at the proper time would have made a big difference. That's how close things were. That's how that's how narrow the margin was. So, there's a Kelly Oaks graphic as she's done for some of the previous articles um, on page thirty that shows some of the lines of battle and some of the lines of approach. And one of your chapters on or one of your sections on on page thirty two is titled "The Inland Navy and Internal Convoys." What's that about? Because particularly. Um, my eye is drawn to the route out of the Caspian Sea that, that works its way north and then west along which river is that? Um, what's that? What's going on with that? That's the Volga River. And somehow the, the, um, the title didn't, the, the name of the river didn't get on there. But yes, that is the Volga River. And that's 8 million tons of supply, of lend lease supply, coming up the Caspian Sea from Iran on board on ships. And along the Volga River, born on barges, and that's that's a significant amount of supply. It's twice as much as came through um, Murmansk, for example. And and I think the whole the whole issue of inland navies, inland waterways, is something that the World War II naval historian doesn't really have in his his um, vision because it, it's not really common in the way that World War II was fought. Yeah, we're talking American Civil War, and we know about riverine navies. But in World War II, this is the first, the only occasion where riverine navies, riverine forces, made a very large difference. And given the given the road network in the Soviet Union, given the fact that the Germans could not use Soviet Soviet uh, railroads without conversion, the rivers become very important transportation corridors. And the Soviets were the ones who took advantage of that much more than the Germans were. Germans did, and the Soviets used the rivers to great effect. And what they did was they improvised all this stuff. They didn't they didn't start off with, you know, a strong flotilla on the Volga. They didn't have anything on the Volga, as a matter of fact. But when the Germans started advancing there, suddenly a navy appeared 
and that navy or those 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 um, those river forces were able to a supply troops up and down the Volga. B they were able to bring in reinforcements. C they were able to supply very important artillery and anti-aircraft support. So people, you know, wonder why did the Germans get stalled in Stalingrad? Why did that offensive, which looked so promising, not come to fruition? Well, yeah, extended lines of supply are one reason, but a really big reason that doesn't get enough credit, I think, is the fact that Soviet riverine forces were able to really assist the ground forces in stopping the German offensive and then maintaining them there once the offensive was stopped. They guaranteed that the Germans were not sending forces across the Volga because it was just simply too dangerous. It would require too much man and material to uh, even attempt a river crossing. So there's there's a lot going on there. And given the nature and the geography of, of the Soviet Union, it's pretty easy to see why the rivers were so important. And, and I'll add to that that it was something that I knew very little about until I started researching this article. I kept going, wow, wow, wow. You know, I'm very surprised at what they were able to accomplish, how quickly they were able to accomplish it, and how important those accomplishments turned out to be in the result of certain campaigns like Stalingrad, for example. The Soviet Riverine uh, War, World War II, is a book that um, should be written, if it hasn't. I mean, in English, anyway. Your um, really good Russian uh, photo supply um, source you have exclusive i might add that we were able to um have in this article includes a great picture of a uh, one of these river tanks that you were the backbone of the inland flotillas it's a very um nice looking river craft it's got the same turret as a t-34 tank several machine guns these were the real like workhorses in the river war weren't they they were and they're kind of they're kind of um Fearsome vessels, if you want my opinion. I'd hate to, I'd hate to have one of those or a flotilla of those come upon me and, and um, start start making life uncomfortable. They, they could dominate the shorelines on both sides. They could prevent the enemy from crossing if they were around. And they could certainly um, provide basic fire support without, without um, too much bother. I, I also, as far as the photographs are concerned, I think we need to give credit to Steve. He's got a lot of great connections in, in, in the Soviet Union or in Russia. Soviet Union's gone, isn't it? He has a lot of connections in Russia, and um, we're able to get some of the photographs from them. So, well, improvis- improvisation was kind of their forte, wasn't it? Um, a lot of this, I keep hearing the word "improvised" over and over again. Uh, we mentioned the large-scale amphibious op that um, held off the forces at um, Sebastopol, um, but they became kind of um, improvising amphibious operations specialists all through the war, didn't they, Vince? Well, they had. I think it was eight landings with division size or larger, which is significant. I mean, how many, how many landings did the Germans pull off other than, other than Norway, for example, compared to the Soviets, the Germans didn't seem to take advantage of the ability to move troops over, over water the same way. There was no reason why the Germans couldn't have conducted at least some small amphibious operations in the Black Sea that might've been, handy to them at certain points in the war. There was no reason why they couldn't have done that in the Baltic, especially in the first days of the war. And the Soviets were never shy about that. They, they, they did more landings of the Germans. They did more landings of the Italians. They did more landings than the Americans and the British did up through 1943. If you, if you want to look at the statistics, the landing in December 1941 was unprecedented. 
at that time. Nobody had attempted anything that large. And as a, as a person who wrote a book about Operation Torch, which was the Anglo-American invasion of North Africa in 1942, you know, I, I can tell you that the amount of planning and preparation that goes into a, a major amphibious operation, at least in the Anglo-American world, is just staggering. I think, I think one of my most favorite statistics about Operation Torch was that one landing, the landing of the Randall Ron, the quantity of maps they required, they required 60, 60 tons of maps. And that's, that's a lot of maps in my book. And the Soviets didn't do this. They didn't prepare 60 tons of maps to land on Kerch. They just mustered the troops, got the boats, and did it. And if they had 10% casualties in certain beachheads, that was the way that it was. What are some things you would say are the biggest takeaways of uh, thinking about – rethinking the naval history of World War II and including the Soviets in that big mosaic a little more. Uh, what is like the elevator speech summation of that you would give to somebody who hadn't really thought about the Soviets in the naval context in this war? Well, I think, I think there's a lot to be said about how the narrative of the naval war in World War II needs, um, I wouldn't say a second look, but it needs a little bit of, of, um, reconsideration. And I think the Soviets provide a great example of why reconsideration is in order. We think of the Soviets, we think of the Red Army, we think we think one way, we think along terms of a certain narrative. But when we look deeper, when we look into the weeds, as it were, the truth is, is much more interesting. And the, uh, the situation is much more complex than we previously realized. It's, 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 classic case of the onion skin the more layers you peel off the more layers there are and the more you're amazed at how much there is to know i think one of the takeaways is that every nation had its own unique requirements and those requirements in that situation need to be considered in the context of what that nation's objectives were what their goals were i, I think for example looking at the case of world war ii you can make a fascinating study of the romanian navy while their opponents were the soviets but um Romanian sea power was a very important thing. The, the interaction of, of the Romanian Navy to Romanian um, armed forces was very important. And we don't, we don't think in terms of Romanian Navy, at least I don't think most people do. Uh, the same could be said for the Finns. All, all these naval powers all had their own version of sea power. They all had their own requirements. and They were all applying it um, very actively and it was very important to their military objectives and their military successes and failures. So I, I think that we need to look at World War II, the history of World War II in a naval context, in a more granular fashion. I think we need to look at it in, in a way that takes into consideration the fact that every nation had its own agenda and its own forces, its own priorities. And yeah, the, the Romanians operated within the context of a German war, but but um, that doesn't change the fact that they were fighting for themselves, as every nation was. They were fighting for what they thought was their own national interests. We tend to look at things in terms of what the big powers were. And, and I think the Soviets are an example of a big power that had a big navy, that did big things, and we still don't know about it. It still doesn't receive much attention. So if that's the case in 2021, um, I, I, I'm very confident that there's much more research, much more investigation and many more opportunities for young historians to pick up different elements of the war at sea in World War II and, and run with them. 
I mean, if I see another book about, excuse me, if, if I'm offending anybody about Midway or about the Indianapolis or about um, Bismarck, I'd much rather read about the Romanian Navy, in all honesty, at this point. All right. That's a call to action to you young historians out there listening to this podcast. The article is Forgotten Victor. The authors are Vincent P. O'Hara and Stephen McLaughlin. Our guest today has been Vince O'Hara, who's now we think, we believe, to, this is his fourth appearance. In fact, Vince, you have the record in terms of number of plays for that D-Day episode which we did a few years ago. What if D-Day had happened a year earlier? That was our record-breaking number of listens. And it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. This is in the June issue of Naval History. On page, it starts on page 27. Vince, thank you for joining us on the Proceedings Podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. I I can tell you for a fact that I enjoy talking to you gentlemen. I enjoy coming here and, and speaking about my work. I enjoy working with Naval Institute. I think you guys are are great in the way that you've been able to keep interest in Naval history alive, been able to advance it, and uh, the work that you do is very important. Thank you, Vince. Always appreciate having you on the show. Thank you very much. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again very soon.